Hello and welcome to V&A Dundee. We're an international design museum showcasing the brilliance of Scottish creativity and the best of design from around the world. The following audio was recorded live at V&A Dundee as part of our public programme. If you'd like to come along to our next event, head over to the website for details. Thanks to V&A Dundee uh, for this special collaborative uh, lecture with the Royal Institute of British Architects. And, uh, and thanks to Phil and his team for, uh, for hosting this event. Um, uh, I'm Kerr Robertson. I'm the Honorary Secretary of the, the RIBA. Um, I'm particularly delighted to welcome Yasmin Larry and hugely grateful to her for agreeing to take part in this ongoing RIBA Vitra talk. Um, this is part of a series of initiatives uh, to showcase the best in contemporary and uh, established talent as well as um, emerging voices in architecture. Uh, leading architects are speaking at events taking place in London and across the UK, as well as internationally with events um, currently in Istanbul and Turkey. Uh, another of my roles at the RIBA is the, uh, the honorary librarian. And I chair the committee that oversees much of our cultural outreach as well as promoting RIBA collections, which is the, the third biggest in the world, uh, we oversee the RIBA's public programme and uh, exhibitions. Uh, we have an extensive school programme, and we're also these days doing a lot of good work in the area of uh, early learning. Uh, some of you may have heard of the Architects Underground. Uh, this is a series of weekly events that we held last year involving other creative industries uh, with performances from leading filmmakers, poets, comedians and, and musicians, uh, as well as presentations from, from architects. Inevitably, a lot of this is London-based. Uh, so as a member of uh, RIS Council uh, as well, uh, I'm particularly pleased with the support of our partners at uh, Vitra Bathrooms uh, that, uh, and that we've been able to make this uh, pre prestigious series of, of lectures around the country. It's great that you could all join us here this evening. Uh, and I should say that we are also very grateful for the LKE Ozilund's grant um, uh, and for their support for tonight's event. Uh, most of all, of course, we are uh, incredibly honoured uh, to have Yasmin Larry join us. Um, as, uh, as Phil mentioned, uh, Yasmin is this year's winner of the Jane Do Drew uh, Prize for Architecture. Uh, she was the first uh, Pakistan uh, female architect and amongst the best known architects in the country, building a number of landmark, landmark buildings across her career. Uh, since retiring from practice, uh, she's become renowned for her work with communities living in disaster-prone areas of the country. She works directly with marginalised communities to develop low-carbon, low-cost structures that can withstand earthquakes and floods in what she calls barefoot architecture. So before we hear more on that, uh, some housekeeping. Uh, you're of course welcome to keep mobile phones on, but please put them to silent. If you are a social media user, uh, feel free to use the hashtag uh, RIBA Vitra. Uh, and lastly, there will be an opportunity to ask some questions from the audience at the end, so please bear that in mind. Uh, but enough from me. Uh, please can you join me in giving uh, a big warm welcome to Yasmin Larry. Thanks. 
Thank you so much, Carol, for this introduction. Um, and what a privilege it is for me to be in Dundee today, a UNESCO city of design, and to be invited to this amazing VNA Design Museum. And thank you so much, Philip Long, for making that possible. Uh, and this is a building that I'd read about and I'd uh, heard about, but not having seen. But now that I'm here, it's really truly an amazing experience. And thank you so much for, uh, to Chloe and uh, our colleagues at RIBA and Margaret at Vitre. And also I'm delighted to know that Vitre actually has a Turkish connection and Pakistan has a very deep uh, connection with Turkey as well. So that was very nice. And also uh, uh, basically for all your effort and arrangements for my travel from Pakistan and an extremely comfortable stay in the UK. And thank you all of you for being here today. <clears throat> I, must, I must warn you that it's, not going to, it's going to be a tough evening today because uh, there'll be no dazzling flights of fancy or glittering images of iconic architecture. And I hope you are prepared for what I'm going to say now. I'm deeply honored by RBA and Vitre, our invitation to discuss some of the issues that continue to severely impact the less developed countries, but equally need attention from architects around the world. <clears throat> These include rising disparities within our societies, both yours and mine, uh, global warming that's affecting all of us, recurring disasters that are happening all the time all around the world, climate change migrants that are happening actually in a big way in countries like mine, and there are conflict-impelled camps for the displaced. Now, these are all issues in which architects can play actually a very vital role. <clears throat> for the developing world in the face of high poverty levels, democratization of architecture and utilizing participatory approaches have become essential. But the industrialized world equally needs to be conscious of the cost that has to be paid to sustain prevalent modes of living and building, which result in fast depletion of the planet's resources. I don't know whether you've heard of Dr. Howard Frederick, but he reminds us that, and I quote, since the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, many business entrepreneurs around the world have simply plundered and exploited the environment in, in ignorance without any thought for sustainability, unquote. Thus, for all of us, it, is, it becomes essential to develop an understanding regarding climate change, which has been defined as human activity that alters the composition of the global atmosphere. On the one hand, it appears chaotic and unmanageable. On the other, it opens up untold opportunities to create design alternatives for fulfilling the emergent needs of the planet. But first, a little bit about Heritage Foundation of Pakistan. It's a not-for-profit social and cultural entrepreneur organization established in 1980 for safeguarding Pakistan's cultural heritage. Since 2005, it provides humanitarian assistance by linking heritage with pre- and post-disaster development. And so you see they're the two arms uh, of the organization that work together. And they're both very important in terms of relating uh, all the different activities that we do. And it incorporates spirit of volunteerism and commitment to causes. This is really uh, what it is about. Now, if you see now uh, something about cultural heritage of Pakistan, uh, there's the tangible heritage. It's very diverse what we have in, in my country. There's the bronzes, Mohenjo-daro and Mehrgarh. There's also Hindu, Buddhist, and Gandhara remains that we have. And there's uh, Sultanate period monuments. There's Mughal palaces, forts, and paradisal gardens. There's British colonial shared heritage also that is there in very large kind of numbers. And then there's the, the intangible heritage, Sufi traditions and spiritualism, folklore, folk traditions, oral history, diverse crafts. So there's plenty there to be able to see and to learn from. <clears throat> 
Now, there's also been climate change disasters in Pakistan. And uh, uh, just to give you a list of these, there have been lots of earthquakes and floods. And you can see the list, which is from 2005, almost every year we've been having uh, one disaster after the other. And, uh, and also Pakistan happens to be among the highest vulnerable countries with recurring disasters as a result of climate change, as it lies on several fault lines and in the path of immense melting glaciers. So it is due to this backdrop uh, that I have been motivated to seek inspiration from cultural heritage and vernacular techniques in order to work out low-cost sustainable methodologies that resonate with the aspirations of marginalized communities in my country. Now, I would like to begin by the question that I asked at 66 Portland Place in 2016. Should architects continue to be an instrument in the hands of the 1% who the famous French economist Thomas Piketty says have accumulated the most wealth? And you can see uh, there are these social justice issues that we should all be perhaps thinking about. And uh, must we aspire only to become prima donnas, creating star architecture for the select few, however much damage it may cause to the earth? And that too, as you must know, in a world where one eight person goes to bed hungry every night. It is ironic that even though belonging to the third world, only after after I had brought to a close my career as a star architect of 36 years from 2005, recurring disasters in Pakistan forced my attention towards the vast marginalized sections of my own country. As a practicing architect, barring a few projects, I also had indulged in an extravagant egotistic journey which focused on serving the elite of my country. So I've, I've done all that as well. But I think now the time has come to change for maybe a lot of many of the architects who are practicing today. The interaction with poverty-stricken, vulnerable populations forced me to dispense with my large, hugely inflated ego, as all architects have, obligating me to swallow the bitter pill of humility by sitting at the threshold of the poor, exploring the age-old practices. Learning from Pakistan's pre-industrial vernacular heritage, I understood that design is not a standalone activity. It must be underpinned by considerations of social impact and ecological sustainability. So. Uh, so do architects contribute to the growth of inequality by unwittingly contributing to Oliver James's influenza virus? I thought I'll just provide you a few tidbits to see what might be something worth thinking about. And I would like to ask you today, can architects play a role in uh, mending the imbalances and stitching the highly damaged earth tapestry? So uh, I don't know how many, of, how many architects here today, this evening. There's quite a few. Okay, well, there's some food for thought for you here. And I thought I'll, I'll pose these questions, but I think it's about time that all of us were, you know, thinking about these issues. So as we know, the Brundtland Commission report of 1987, have you heard of the Brundtland report, which is to do with the sustainability? And I don't know how many are familiar with that, but it's something that I think all of us need to be thinking about. And that had emphasized sustainable development and in particular meeting the needs of the world's poor while Paul Hawkins' uh, seminal book, A Decade Later in 1999, had warned us about the excessive use of resources in threatening the Earth's future uses. Thus, the recent movements for transition design and degrowth in the, world, in the West and my own barefoot model are all aimed at a changeover to more sustainable future 
lifestyles for humankind. Last September, I was leaving my keynote um, during the Vienna Biennale on the uh, theme of the broken planet and the use of my barefoot model as a mechanism for healing the planet. I found that many in the audience were perplexed and asked, why barefoot? I had to respond, it is because the work I do today is with people who walk barefoot. They have no shoes. I had overlooked the fact that in affluent countries, nobody is used to people walking without shoes. But there's a mass of people and there's a huge number who really have, don't have um, any shoes at all, and that means that they're really poorest of the poor. So in my country, a vast number are barefoot because of lack of resources, obviously. But walking barefoot also has its recompenses. It keeps you close to the earth and in direct contact with it at all times. And it is perhaps the underlying reason why many of our age-old vernacular traditions are based on judicious use of the earth's resources. The underprivileged are acutely aware that it is the nature that provides them with means of survival. And so the protection of the planet is of paramount importance to them. Today, my life's mission is to find ways to build for the other 99% of our population, as well as to deal with climate change impact by reduction of GHG, greenhouse gas emissions. And the dictum I follow is low cost, zero carbon footprint, and zero waste. I'm no longer interested in being recognized as the author of my work. The barefoot social architecture that I practice creates a blank canvas that relies on the participatory process which facilitates ordinary people to, to utilize their creativity, particularly women, bringing to, the unique, to, to life unique artworks. How could I call it my creation when each woman has endowed it with attributes that takes the work beyond architecture into, into the realm of public art? So, um, Let's see now, this is Barefoot Social Architecture, Vaza. Over the last years, in my struggle to articulate a people's humanistic architecture as part of rights-based development, incorporating attributes of social and ecological justice, a stratagem that I call Barefoot Social Architecture, or Baza, has shaped the ecology of my, my work. Baza is akin to social engineering and uh, bringing about social change, incorporating environmental, cultural and technical dimensions, resulting in transformation of mindset among those who political philosopher Franz Fanon refers to as the wretched of the earth, from a cycle of dependency to a culture of pride and self-esteem. The transition itself from recipients of aid to becoming implementers fosters empowerment. And uh, it helps not only to attain primary human needs, but also emboldens them to demand, as former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan has declared, uh, you know, justice as a right. And this is something that's missing in most of our countries. On the one hand, Baza makes seeks to democratize architecture that provides people with well-being and self-esteem. On the other, it demonstrates partiality for zero carbon footprint using ubiquitous earth, conservative magic lime, and renewable bamboo. Now, I don't know how many people have actually used lime here? But we'll talk about it a little bit later because that's a material that I think everybody should become familiar with. So what is Baza? Uh, it consists of the following aspects, aspects. Maximizing the potential of uh, barefoot ecosystem. Secondly, zero carbon humanistic architecture fostering pride, dignity, and well-being. Thirdly, deli delivery of unmet needs by 
Barefoot uh, Incubator uh, for Social Good and Environmental Sustainability, and fourthly, adoption of non-engineered structures for shrinking the ecological footprint. Now, uh, just to share, show you a slide of the impact of BASA as uh, we've been practicing for the last several years now. Uh, you will see in the slide that since 2012, we've been able to impact about 0.84 million lives. That means that about 100,000 people have benefited from this particular approach per year. And uh, I'm hoping that this will accelerate and we'll be able to reach out to much larger number. Because as you can see, even this is really a drop in the ocean. When you look at the disparities that exist in countries like mine, this is really very, very little. But I'm hoping that if we can spread it, then we'll be able to reach out to many more. And you can see that there have been something like over 42,000 houses have been built. There have been lots of uh, chulas, the Pakistan stove. There's something like 60,000 of those have been built. There's uh, hand pumps and there's uh, toilets and so on, and forests. So all these together really have impacted many people's lives. And this is all to do with really sustainable, sustainable ways of building and really very, very economical ways of, of construction. Now, we go to this first one, which is maximizing the potential of a barefoot ecosystem. Now, I'd like to put it to you that the deprivations mentioned are part of a disparate parallel word of a latent barefoot ecosystem, the prospects of which have been overlooked by economists and politicians alike. Working with marginalized communities in the last years has allowed me to adopt a bottoms-up approach, encouraging efficient use of funds and resources, rights-based development, knowledge sharing through training and guidance for cost-effective output. This in turn has stimulated the barefoot ecosystem. In order to foster a life of reasonable fulfillment through an, an enabling process of serving and sharing with the other disadvantaged populations. First, of course, as you can see, there's the barefoot economy, uh, which is transactions by, by low-income and marginalized groups. And this is the, the transaction that take place among themselves. Then the second is the barefoot market, which is untapped market for services and uh, products that exist due to the deprived state of marginalized communities. There's so little in their lives that you know, they really need just about everything. So there's just a huge market there. And the third is the barefoot enterprises. These are services and products to, uh, for basic unmet needs of the people. And for example, shelter, sanitation, water, fuel-efficient stoves for clean food, etc. And the fourth is the barefoot entre entrepreneurs, persons trained to serve impoverished communities by, by charging a small fee. That's how they make a lot of money, actually, because there's so many of them. And uh, then there are the barefoot skills, which are uh, non- or semi-literate pain to utilize locally um, sourced renewable materials. And the sixth is the barefoot products that are affordable items, uh, which are you know, fabricated using, again, sustainable materials, recycled materials to improve quality of life of the poor. So uh, now if you look at this graphics that we prepared, um, you see at the bottom is the, uh, the barefoot ecosystem which is the bottoms-up approach, efficient use of funds and resources, rights-based development, knowledge sharing and training, and cost-effective output. And then if you look at the barefoot economy, <clears throat> which is... Uh, uh, now, we know that the prevalent, highly consumptive market economy and market-intensive in societies pursuing material gains have, in any case, not benefited the underprivileged. This is very clear in all parts, in 
certain parts of the world, especially in South Asia and, and in Africa. Since as Carnegie Mellon's professor Irwin points out, they are only motivated by the desire for profit and economic growth rather than human fulfillment. And that's what's missing most of the time. And Chilean economist Max Neef observes that for barefoot economy to flourish, and I quote, it is the realization of needs as objectives that becomes a motor of development, which leads to the fulfillment of local desires and wishes, unquote. Thus, a barefoot economy promotes human-centered development, itself being regenerated by low-cost products that weave nature with age-old vernacular techniques, contributing to a more equitable lifestyle. The transactions are based on procurement for essential unmet needs using judicious use of sustainable materials and fashion by low-income marginalized workers that contribute to improved quality of life for the disadvantaged. And then, of course, the barefoot market. It is non-existent in the eyes of most finance specialists. Nobody looks at it. They don't think it is there. Uh, but there's just a huge market that exists today. However, due to poor governance and corruption in many developing economies, a vast variety of goods are required in order to make up deficits in physical and social infrastructure alone, let alone anything else. I mean, there's, they just don't have even the basic needs. So it is akin to a humanitarian marketplace, if you like, to respond to many vulnerabilities faced by the poor. For example, in my country, there's a ready market for millions of units to gratify the primary human needs alone, such as safe shelters, echo toilets, water pumps, and fuel-efficient stoves. And by using low-cost, sustainable materials, a host of downstream pro barefoot products can be promoted and must be promoted. So the barefoot market is now underpinned by barefoot enterprises that are social enterprises managed by barefoot entrepreneurs. They're all barefoot because they're all very, very poor. We don't have any rich people working for the poor at all in, in our country. So that's what we have to do is to empower the poor to be able to help the other poor. And uh, so uh, they are non-literate and were once largely unskilled. These are the barefoot entrepreneurs. These micro-ventures are designed to help guide the process of safe construction and many inexpensive organic products. It is the barefoot entrepreneurs, or bees as I call them, that are likely to become millionaires who by sharing their knowledge and expertise are able to foster social good and well-being for the underprivileged. Because what they do always helps the other poor people who don't have uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of facilities that, that the, the, the rich have. By exploiting the market for stoves, one barefoot couple by charging rupees 200 or one pound per unit has helped build 30,000 units, earning 125,000 or over 600 pounds per month or over 25 times their original income of rupees 5,000. So that's the scale of opportunity. This is how many, how many units are needed. And if we can train them to be able to reach out at a low enough cost, and almost everybody can become a millionaire, I think. That's what I'm aiming for. In addition, the self-built, clean, fuel-efficient uh, Pakistan Chula has helped transform the lives of thousands of downtrodden women, bringing dignity and respect in their lives. Similarly, other barefoot entrepreneurs, for example, toilet or shelter bees, barefoot entrepreneurs, are also set to earn enormous incomes through sustainable micro-enterprises. Because, for instance, now we've launched a program for building toilets, and you need millions of toilets. So can you imagine people start charging for that and how much can they earn? And the toilets have to be, of course, very low cost, so be able to reach out. And uh, so, so it's the, I mean, it's the, the field is wide open.
And then the barefoot skills are, are imparted to the unskilled and the non-literate. Now we have, although our government says that our literacy levels are high, but really uh, there are areas where there's 99% non-literate people living. And so this is the, this is the problem with us, that we, do, we have to really be able to train them in skills, even though they are non-literate. And that they can go out and help others. And gradually then their quality of life then rises also. And they all want to then also learn. And they all want to become literate. So trainings for safe construction, bamboo and earth materials, terracotta and glazed tiles, provide services and products for unmet needs. And this is important to understand. If we are targeting the skills to provide unmet needs, then the market is huge. It shouldn't be something that is a, a fancy product, but it has to be something that will fulfill their own needs. And then there are the barefoot products that have to be based on locally sourced eco-materials in order to make them affordable that contribute for improved quality of, of, uh, of, of life and of products. And this is where, uh, interestingly, if you work for the poor, you're also working for the planet. Because what you do does not harm the planet anymore. And uh, that's what I wanted to bring to the table, that uh, you know, we have to now start learning from all our, our vernacular traditions, especially in, the, in countries like ours, which are poor, where people have to survive with very little and that's where you learn the lessons as to how can you manage. And that's where you need architects to design something using those materials. That's what's missing today. Architects are not there. They are working for the 1% most of the time. So the products consist of sun-dried brick or, or lime brick, prefab thatch panels and bamboo doors and windows to household items of terracotta and glazed ceramics to organic soap and recycled briquettes and compost from waste and so on and so on. So there are lots of products that can be used, which are good for the planet as well. So uh, now I come to the second part of uh, the presentation of BASA, which is Zero Carbon Humanistic Architecture, which fosters pride, dignity, and well-being. So in my present work, I follow two gurus. I'll show you the gurus that are there. Oh, they're basically, one is the Lime Guru, which is... Marcus Vitruvius, you must have all read him, know about him. I don't know whether you've read the chapter on Lyme or not, but it's an amazing piece of work. And uh, of course, as you know, uh, Lyme is something that was used before cement had been created uh, in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, and so he's the author of Treatise of the Architecture or the then Books of Architecture, as you know. So. Uh, and today I'm bound by his four elements of air, water, earth, and fire as limits of architecture. In his extensive treatise, he, de he defines all bodies as being composed of four elements. And I quote, uh, those with larger portion of air are soft, of water are tough from the moisture of, of earth, uh, of earth hard and of, of fire more brittle, unquote. Thus, the alchemy of natural elements addresses the bounds of sustainability, spanning the spheres of economic, social, moral, and cultural aspects. I believe that the use of these elements leads us to the confines of democratic norms and behavior. So it's very important for us to go back and to perhaps study him. And then the next one is Hassan Fatehi. Anybody heard of Hassan Fatehi? No? Well, great Egyptian architect, worked in mud. 1930s, and uh, uh, he, he showed, it, it, he authored a book called Architecture for the Poor, 
And uh, he has shown so far ago, uh, or so long ago, you know, how you could use common materials or sustainable materials to produce something that is of value. And um, as Hassan Bey, and fondly addressed as Hassan Bey, would have it, I'm also conscious at all times of the obligation to be close to nature and to the people and to traverse a path which would unleash the creativity of the common folk. Using their intangible reserves of ancient wisdom, immersed as they are in their folklore, oral histories and craft traditions, the so-called vernacular expression. And uh, that is something that you have to really lose your ego to be able to learn all that. And I'm just very glad that I gave up my practice in 2000 when I was able to then do all this. So um, then um, I consider myself to be an advocate of uh, low carbon footprint. Uh, and uh, basically, as you can see, I just use un unfired clay, lime, and bamboo. And um, <clears throat> now, Am I, these are the most sustainable materials, which are the only materials that are now used in my work. I used enormous amount of uh, concrete and steel and reflective glass, and I, I feel that I'm now trying to atone for all that. So a lot of times I'm asked, why am I doing this? And I think perhaps that's the reason why, because I think I've inflicted a lot of damage in the past on the planet. So as you might be aware, clay does not have to be burnt in fire to attain strength. You know that? Clay is something very, very strong. And the combination of earth, fire, and sunlight provides a building material of great value. The ever-present earth is most freely available and one that is used most around the world by the poor. Somehow, um, all of us who've been trained properly, professionals, we don't think that earth is something that you think about because it's used by the poor. And this is where the blockage, I think, is. And that's what the, the divide that we have to somehow fill up now. We, we can't continue to believe in that way because earth is a fantastic material. Then the second material is lime. It is hewn as a rock, which the alchemy of fire transforms into an unparalleled force that has provided strength to the Roman aqueducts. Did you know that? There was no cement at that time. Uh, and impregnable 15th century Timurite forts. Uh, they are still surviving and doing very well. No cement. Once a common earth and lime are mixed together, Water provides a strength that cannot be surpassed by any other material and the least by Portland cement. I would like to try for you to experiment and try it. Because uh, as you know, all of us who worked in heritage, conservation, we know about lime. But architects who have not worked in conservation don't know that lime is a fantastic material. And I, because I was working in conservation when I went to the earthquake area, I was able to use lime and found that when I mixed it with, with mud or with earth, it became so strong, it was amazing. So that's what I think we need to promote now. Now, lime also absorbs carbon from the air through what is known as the lime cycle, comprising a sequence of change in its form from burning, flaking, and hardening, and returning to its original carbonate form. And the third material is bamboo. The amazing product is nurtured by soil and water and has incomparable characteristics. Technically classified as a grass, it provides a crop every two to three years. Did you know that? It's very fast growing. And due to its resilience and, use of, and uh, ease of use and being among the largest renewable resources, it is the mainstay of my seismic and floodproof structures. So when I was giving a public lecture in Tokyo a few years ago on the occasion of receiving this highly prized Japanese Fukuoka Award for Arts and Culture, a member of the audience questioned me 
asking how long did I think bamboo would last? And you know, Japan has some fantastic bamboo structures of the old. They don't use it now because their codes don't allow it because of, and I'm, I'm surprised why it is so because I have not seen a be more beautiful bamboo than what I've seen in Japan. But unfortunately they don't do it now. Anyhow, so my answer was that in Pakistan, I thought perhaps 25 years, but ever since I visit the, visited the be beautiful Kumamoto castle, have you ever heard of Kumamoto Castle? It's a very beautiful castle of, I think, 16th century. And I visited the, the castle, and just after the earthquake, the bamboo lattice was exposed in many of the walls. And so I thought, well, it can probably last 400 years. So bamboo can actually be a fantastic material. And uh, I don't know, but in South Asia, actually, there are some very fine structures that have been built with bamboo, but mostly, again, for the rich. And, uh, but anyway, it doesn't matter if you're working for the rich, please use these sustainable materials because we need to go for hybrid kind of architecture where you have a combination of low and high carbon materials. And that's perfectly okay, I think. So, um, uh, so this is what I do now. I only use these materials and I have some slides uh, to, to show you as to how this works out. Um, okay, so this is the improved vernacular uh, that I talk about. On the, this one is an original Dhiji construction. Ever heard of Dhiji construction? There's a professor, Professor Langenbach of America who's actually written quite a lot about this. This is a cross bracing that is used in, uh, uh, in areas uh, in, in the north, north uh, of Pakistan and in, in Azad Kashmir and, and Indian held Kashmir. And there uh, it, they survived pretty well. So this particular slide is after the earthquake uh, in, in Kashmir. And then uh, this is how we, we are using it. We've converted the dhiji or the cross bracing of wood in, into bamboo cross bracing. And um, so this has been, uh, uh, the one on the left has withstood 7.6 uh, Richter scale earthquake of 2005. And, uh, and, and so we can see that it had tremendous resilience. Uh, and so, but the one that I've designed now, wood is replaced with uh, renewable bamboo resilience achieved at very low cost, and filling varies from unfired clay, matting, local stone, or whatever is available on the site. So if you have a structure which is resilient, then you can do any kind of uh, infill panels into that, and that'll work fine. So, uh, so that's one of my major kind of, uh, you know, uses of, of vernacular. Then this is from Sindh, where I live. This is, uh, uh, if you see the, the roof on the, Left is a conical thatched roof that I use quite a lot now. And uh, this survived the 2010 uh, uh, floods that happened, the very intensive floods. And by using bamboo in its construction and anchoring securely to the earth walls, safety is assured when I design. So this is what I designed with mud and with uh, uh, a roof, with a thatched roof, where you, through the thatched roof, you also have free movement of air and so on. So uh, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm learning from from vernacular heritage in quite a lot actually. Now this is a, a women's center in flood areas and uh, uh, actually the model is now at the, the RIBA model room because they displayed it in 2016 in that very fine exhibition they'd held. And uh, just to show you, um, this actually is a, a video by Al Jazeera. So it's all bamboo again. This is an area where it floods every year. I mean, this is right by the side of the river. And this was built in, 
I think early 2011. So it's been there for the last whatever number of years and still surviving. So I uh, just wanted to show you a few examples of uh, you know, how we're using, we can use vernacular uh, traditions and construction in contemporary architecture. And I'm only working for the poor, but I think those who work for the rich can equally use those, uh, uh, those models uh, and probably will do a far more uh, impressive kind of uh, maybe iconic architecture, even with bamboo and why not. So now the third part of my BASA is the Barefoot Enterprise Incubator for Social Good and Environmental Sustainability. It's the same kind of incubator that you find for, for instance, IT and so on, where you know, you're, uh, you train people and then you mentor them and then you monitor them and you provide them all the assistance and also, and, and, and that works uh, for, for making, you know, software and all kinds of uh, fancy technical kind of things. But I thought this, a similar kind of approach could work well for the poor as well. And so we've established this. So uh, now considering the expected shortfall in funding for achieving sustainable development goals, are you familiar with sustainable development goals? You know? what it is, because all of us who live in, our, in the third world have to be very conscious because by 2030, we have to meet about 17 of them and we are nowhere near, I can assure you. So uh, unless we change the whole system, the way we work, we will not be able to manage it. Because something like only 50% of the funding that is needed in Asia and Africa is available today. And um, unfortunately, uh, the models we use will not allow that we should be able to reach them unless we scale down the way that we do things and unless we bring to zero carbon kind of structures. Only then we might be able to reach the sustainable development goals. So uh, in order to develop barefoot enterprises for low cost services and products, along with accessing follow-up humanitarian and funding, the Barefoot Incubator has been established, which focuses on fulfilling unmet needs of the vast majority living below the uh, poverty line. This is the structure of the Barefoot Incubator. And uh, I don't know how we're doing for time, but I think I'll just rush through that. It is, basically based on the same way that you do for an IT model. And uh, if you will see on the, on the right, uh, this is a, you know, basically um, eight villages where we are promoting, uh, you know, a lot of different kind of products. Uh, each village is specializing in one. And the first one uh, has been done with the help of British Council and also uh, in collaboration with University of Glasgow, as it happens. So it was set up a year ago. And um, for their program called DICE, which is to do with creative enterprises, uh, and, and with, uh, as I said, with the University of Glasgow, to conduct workshops for over 200 selected incubators for eight services or products with a ratio of 60% women and 20% with disabilities, belonging to mendic mendicant villages. These are villages where the only beggars live in the vicinity of Makli World Heritage, consisting of the poorest of the poor. The five-day intensive workshops focused on uh, different specializations by master artisans. So those master artisans are also mostly non-literate, mostly the ones who have trained in certain skills, but they are able to impart it to others. Thus, after training over 200 persons, eight villages were set up with workplaces and provided handholding and monitoring for 12 months. And so uh, that's, that's what's been happening, and it, we are getting quite good results on all that. Now, these are the delivery of unmet needs. Again, as you can see, um, I feel there's four elements like shelter, uh, toilets, um, hand pumps, and chula are essential for people to be able to live. And so that's what we train most of the time. Plus, there's also a lot of kind of crafts 
that we are trying to promote. And those are, again, being used to, to provide uh, services to the other poor. So, um, so they can be terracotta items and ceramic products and so on and so forth. And now I'm pleased to tell you that something like 70% of those over 200 people are now uh, have, are, are living above poverty line. They've been able to earn enough to be able to do that. So that is something that has worked out pretty well. And um, then I want to just show you, um, this is the campus. It's called the Barefoot uh, Zero Carbon Campus for Barefoot uh, in, uh, Incubator. And that's where we uh, train uh, everybody. And this is now a, a residential campus, provides training for low-cost social enterprises for unmet needs of the poor. And then now I come to, uh, this is... Uh, Basically, this is how the training goes on. The kind of people that are being trained, uh, they're mostly, a lot of them, as I said, are women, and we do quite a lot of work with them. Um, and we find that women are the ones who are going forward. You know, there's a great misconception about Pakistan, many misconceptions, actually. And uh, one of them is that women probably can't do anything at all. And uh, so a lot of times women are left behind just because people think that they will not do it. But what my experience has been that it's amazing what they're able to achieve. And we have to focus on them because that's where we get the results. So um, now I just wanted to just show you very quickly uh, a safe shelter. This is a prefab bamboo structure, which has been finished off by people themselves. And again, you can see the costs are very, very little. And then there's the, again, a toilet. Again, very low cost. Uh, there's a hand pump. A raised hand pump so that it doesn't, uh, pellets don't affect it. And then this is a Pakistan chula, and you can see how I designed it. But then this is what they make of it on the left. It's something beyond my expectation. I never thought. And there are 60,000 of them that have been built. Each one is different because each housewife has decorated it and made it beautiful. So on the right is the uh, World Habitat Award that, uh, that uh, David Ireland was kind enough to to bring to Pakistan and was given in this Interbar conference. And I'm just so happy that Harriet Weinberg is here, instrumental in putting it all together. And I'll talk a little bit about it later. And so, uh, so that's, uh, that, that's what is possible. Now I come to the last part of my bazaar uh, uh, sort of segments. Um, so, you know, I'm talking of non-engineered structures, but I just wanted to say that high carbon emissions are inflicted on the world in the name of safe post-disaster reconstruction in areas where low ecological footprint was the norm, such as Pakistan's picturesque north, which has been ruined with proliferation of engineered cement concrete structures in the aftermath of 2005 earthquake, um, built with international aid and promoted as state policy. So oh, I, I just feel that international aid culture needs revisiting because that is inflicting a lot of damage by the use of engineered structures that are brought in and which may be totally alien. So um, I just wanted to say that <clears throat> charity, although in good faith, fosters dependency and, and you know, robs the receiver of self-esteem. We've seen a lot of it happening in Pakistan, and I would really like to think that international aid and this charity model must be revised. Uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, the UN system is using it. A lot of aid uh, agencies coming from different Western countries are using this, and I think the time has come for us to change all that. So promotion of alien imagery is not good, lack of appropriate knowledge. Uh, and so the tools that are used, they, you know, it doesn't really allow the needy to get the assistance that is needed. 
And then uh, obviously women are left behind because again, as I said, nobody thinks women are capable of doing anything. So they are never accessed, nobody trains them. And so we have this whole uh, you know, huge population that cannot actually contribute in any way. And then there's of course the high administration cost of this whole thing. And uh, so far the humanitarian funding um, landscape has been largely dominated by classical international or Western charity uh, syndicates, as well as the UN-backed cluster or siloed system. Have any of you worked in disaster areas at all, ever? Been part of it? Uh, this whole UN system and there's a whole approach of dividing everything into little kind of silos so that if uh, UN Habitat will build shelter, it won't do anything else. UNICEF will give water or with children, but nothing else. And, and, and uh, FAO will give only plantation. So they would work in different areas, but never coming together as a, as a, you know, as a complementary kind of an attempt, which meant, or which means, has meant so far, that you never see the results. Because in isolation, if you give these items, then nobody can really take much benefit out of it. So we have to, I think, change that, because it's been done with the intention of providing good, but doling out vast amounts to the recipients and considering them as helpless victims. They are not taken as partners. So due to the inherent inefficiency in the system, high structural and management costs, constrained outreach, insensitivity to local cultural norms, and inability to treat sufferers as equal partners, the goal of sustainability will continue to be unattainable. So uh, I just wanted to put this to you because I think a lot of you might know people in government or influential people, and I think we need to tell them that they must change this whole system now. Uh, you know, mostly it's given out to countries like ours, and I don't think it's working. So now this is for, for you to see building industry consumption. And we were just talking earlier about uh, how much, uh, you know, concrete, how much energy is used in concrete. You can see 40% of world energy is used in uh, the, the normal construction, 16% uh, of water usage, 3 billion tons of raw material, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see the damage that's being caused by the way that we are building today. And we continue to do that. So we have to now rethink as to what should be done in terms of uh, making it uh, more sustainable. <clears throat> now, this is the international model. You see on the left, burn brick, and uh, costing about 500 to 670 pounds. And uh, uh, this was uh, Magnus Wolfrey, who, uh, Wolf Murray, who actually was uh, advisor to Defeat, and he worked out that 100,000 one-room shelters would cost Pakistan, uh, you know, something like uh, deforestation to the tune of 50,000 acres. And this is only by using um, burn brick. Where you don't actually have to use burn brick, if you use lime brick, it would be equally strong, there'll be no problem. So why go in for burn brick? Anyhow, so this is, and then non-engineered sustainable construction, and this is what we do. It costs only about 85 pounds to maximum 124 pounds per unit. And you can see uh, 40,000 shelters were built from, you know, up to 2014, between three years and with IOM. And world's last, largest zero carbon footprint shelter program, it became no carbon emissions, no trees were felled, 1,750 villages were covered, 300,000 persons were housed. And materials used are locally sourced clay, low energy lime and renewable bamboo. So it can be done. And uh, I just wanted to show you now, I'll go very quickly. How are we doing for time? Are we okay? All right. So um, this is something called the log, uh, the Larry Octagreen. It's made out of 
prefabricated bamboo panels. And um, uh, it's been, uh, you know, a couple of thousand of these have been fabricated and shipped out to different parts of uh, uh, Pakistan, mostly in Sindh, but uh, a consignment is also now going to Malawi in, in Africa. So uh, it is something that can be packed and wrapped and sent off anywhere, and then it can be just constructed. So very quickly, I'll just show you how the whole thing works. So this is just a very basic kind of form, which is just a panel, which has got the cross bracing that I showed you from the north. And uh, this can be then put together um, in, in the form of a, you know, a room, like 12, by, 12 foot by 12 foot room. And uh, then if you expand it and put some more panels, you can make it into a kind of a classroom. And uh, so basically you, you, you prefabricate the, the basic panels and you know, you just use them in different ways. And if you put some more, then, then put a dome over it, then it becomes a World Habitat Center. And if you were to, you know, because it's modular, so you can add on. And if you add on two more, then uh, where is it now? It becomes the Interval Center. And Harriet is here, so she's the one who was instrumental in getting it done. This was a center that was built, and we are very grateful to uh, His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, because of whose uh, interest and support we were able to do actually quite a bit there. So, it, it, and it's all about zero carbon. Sorry, this is what the Interbar Center actually looks like. So now, uh, when we're talking of now non-engineered structures, this I wanted to show you because this is a totally seismic-proof structure. It is made out of earth, brick, and uh, bamboo lattice. And I show you uh, the construction. Uh, I know there are not that many architects here, but. Okay, so you basically do a trench, like the foundation, very shallow, only about 12 inches or something. You use lime concrete. You put the brick masonry, the, the earth brick masonry, and put lattice of bamboo in between. And it's all tied together. As you know, if you're working on seismic construction, the whole structure should move together. So everything has to be tied very, very carefully. And there's nothing in it except uh, you know, bamboo lattice within the layers and then also um, on the two sides as you'll see. And the roof is just bamboo. So there's nothing here except mud and bamboo. And then uh, you put in the lattice on the outside and inside and you tie it together and that's it. And that, that works pretty well. So this has, was designed actually for 2015 floods in the uh, uh, earthquake in the north. and. Uh, if you will see now, very quickly, I'll show you the protocol. We got it tested on a, on a shaking table, because that's how people said, no, we can't believe that this is not going to collapse. So we had to get this test done. And the test is, as you can see, it was, uh, uh, we took it to a very fine university in Karachi called NED University, and they, they stimulated the movements on the, uh, on the Kobe earthquake of 7.3 Richter scale. So let's, uh, <laughs> we'll have to go to the other one. But you can see this is just, Bamboo and 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 uh, and uh, and mud. Now uh, this is the zero carbon cultural center ZC3, as it is popularly known, was the venue which is built entirely with bamboo trusses and bamboo prefabricated panels filled in with bamboo tracery. Uh, the marquee-like structure was built in 2017 for providing training and other activities for the marginalized communities that live in the vicinity of Makli World Heritage. So Interval Pakistan International Conference at Makli. Uh, here, this is all the delegates who had come, and you can see Harriet also sitting there. 
this was a remarkable assembly of uh, committed experts who gathered at Zero Carbon Campus built to promote zero carbon techniques. We were honored by so many, and I'm really delighted that Harriet Weinberg, who's uh, the executive director of Interbau, is present with us today. She has traveled all the way from London to be here. So thank you so much, Harriet. And uh, this is uh, with the interest and support of His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, that we have been able to expand it to provide overnight stay for over 30 conference delegates, as well as the setting up of the Interbau Training and Resource Center that I showed you earlier on. And uh, all the delegates who came uh, stayed there in the cottages, which were modeled on the prefabricated log, which is what we give to the poor. And I'm very happy to say that they survived the experience. So <laughs> and the center is expected to become the mainstay for various activities being organized by Interbar Pakistan, in, including various students' workshops and library and digital depository of content for research in related fields. So if there's something that we can collaborate with BNA and Dundee, we'll be very happy to do that. That'd be wonderful. Please uh, do be in touch with Interbau in UK. Uh, Harriet is here. And visit the Interbau Center in Pakistan also. I would like to send, you know, send an invitation to all of you, whoever can make it. A lot of you might go to India, but why not just you know, go across the border? Come and see us. And that would be nice. And we'll welcome all visitors interested in zero carbon footprint techniques, as well as barefoot social architecture to reach out to the underprivileged. Please help us to further our mission. Thank you so much. This is also the last slide, I think. Thank you for listening. You can find more stories and resources on our website at vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee. That's vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee. Mm -hmm.